Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everyone left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with bereavement professionals. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. In 16 years of working at the Dougie Center and facilitating peer support groups for those in grief, people ask often, how are your peer support groups different than like going to a therapy one? And I've tried to answer and I've made things up, but in reality, I didn't really understand exactly what the difference was. Then, about two years ago, I had a conversation with today's guest, Matt Moderson, and in that conversation, the difference really clicked. So I invited Matt to come join us today and help us sort of suss out and discern really what are the differences between using therapy or support group when someone's grieving. Matt's a licensed clinical social worker. He specializes in individual, couples, family, and group psychotherapy, and he has over 30 years of experience as a clinician, an educator, and a trainer. Matt is also a past volunteer here at the Dougie Center, and personal caveat, he was my professor in graduate school, so it's a little bit different and a little weird to be on the other side of the one asking the questions. Thanks, Matt. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and it's uh, nice to see that you've been at the Dougie Center for 16 years now, and uh, you found your passion. So it's wonderful. Yeah, it's and wonderful. I'm and I'm still a baby here compared to all my coworkers who've been here for 20 and 25 years. Oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> so Matt, with your extensive knowledge and experience working with people in the context of both individual and family and group therapy, I have a feeling we could probably talk for hours about the ways in which grief shows up in your work. Um, and today I'm really hoping we can look at how are peer support and therapy different and how would someone really decide which way to go or maybe go in both directions. And how has, you know, the ways we work with grief in the therapeutic context, how has that changed over time? So uh, that's my goal, and whatever else we talk about is great, too. Okay, that, that's great. That's, uh, that's a great goal. I think the part that intrigues me the first, and I'll talk a diff- about the difference between uh, sort of psychotherapy groups and support groups um, in a little bit, but I like your question, I think, about how has our thinking about grief changed over the years. I think that... Uh, at least mine has. And one of the things that we used to believe, I think, is that you eventually get over grief and that you move on in some capacity. I don't think that's true anymore. I don't think a lot of people necessarily believe that, that eventually, at least those in the helping profession, I think sometimes uh, uh, our friends may think we should be over something when Absolutely. we're not. Absolutely, that right? still happens. That still happens, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, and... Uh, so they have this predictable sort of idea that if it's a year, you should be here. If it's two years, you should be here. Sometimes th- even if it's been two weeks, two you weeks, be right? Here. Right. So our friends, you know, maybe who have not experienced grief or in the way that we have, they have a sense about how grief should be uh, that we should be over it. I think in the therapy field, for one, I've come to look at grief as something that gets incorporated into the fabric of our life. So it becomes us, it is us, and it uh, changes us in some fundamental way that we learn to accept or we learn to live with, but it becomes integrated into our lives. It's not something that ever goes away. And I think, for me, that's been the biggest change. Coming into the field in my early 20s 
and learning to be a psychotherapist, I thought people eventually get over things and you move on and you, ch- you can change. Over the years, I realized it's not true, that what happens is we integrate our experiences in our lives and they become part of us. We just had this conversation last night in one of my groups of, you know, thinking back to when you first got into the field and the goal may have been to help someone get over their grief. Do you remember what that would have looked like? Like, what would someone have been saying or doing that would have indicated that they were over it? They probably wouldn't be talking about it anymore. Now, you look at Kubler-Ross, who, you know, really had that, uh, the steps of grieving, right? They came out, what was that, in the 60s, 70s, something like that. And there was a way that you think you go through these stages, they're linear, and then you quit talking about it. You just live your life. Uh, You don't talk about the person who died as much, right? Uh, And I think that's what we thought it might have looked like, but that doesn't exist, right? Yeah, it's so interesting to think that the goal might have been to get someone to a place where they didn't talk about someone that was so important to them or so vital or such a part of their growing up. It might be like, oh, you're still talking about memories from elementary school? Aren't you over that yet? Aren't you over that yet? Or the fact that you talk about the memory and you still cry and you still tear up and your heart still, you you still feel the person in your heart. That might have been an indication that you're not over this. But I sort of think about it as it's an indication that maybe it's integrated. As, as part of your life. It's the fabric yeah. of who you are. And that so. you continue to love and care about someone even if they're not <clears throat> here in the physical form. Right, right. We never get over it. I mean, we never... It becomes part of us. So with this new sort of context and lens of looking at grief as something that we integrate and metabolize and take with us into our lives, what sort of things are you hopeful for when a client comes into your office dealing with grief? Um, one of the things that... I find that's interesting is every loss changes the trajectory of our life. So if your parents divorced when you were six, it changed the trajectory. So loss redefines us all the time, right? And so sometimes folks don't have the opportunity to stop and reflect on how that loss has redirected them, how it changed things for them. And then I think in the neurobiological sense, these experiences hardwire ways in our brain of adapting to our environment, of adapting to change. So that in one sense, grief loss leads us in our life. But if we don't understand how it's leading us, it may have more say than we want it to have. So in therapy, the goal is to understand how it changed things. As you were talking, I'm seeing it as grief almost becomes these guideposts in us that can sometimes shape how we make decisions. And sometimes we're conscious of how that's shaping our decisions. And sometimes those decisions are happening without us having a lot of awareness. Exactly. It was better said. You just, that was a better way of saying it. That's a nice summary of what I just said. It's the consciousness of it or the lack of consciousness. Uh, I don't think any of us want loss. So we want to stay away from it. Yeah, no one wakes up like, I'm so excited today to find out something tragic and heartbreaking. Yeah, right. None of us want that. And I think our brain is wired to help us to survive. So we want to stay away from situations that may bring up that sadness or may bring up that grief. So that wiring, that adaption that the body does, that we do as people, is what's leading us. That adaptation is leading us. And we may not need, what if I experience a loss as a five-year-old? And that loss is still guiding me in my relationship with my partner as a 40-year-old. 
I may not need that adaptive strategy now. That's the difference in therapy. So in therapy, it's about how do we become conscious of that in some way? How do we feel it in another? And how do we not let it lead all the time? How can I see this as not about having to touch that loss all the time? I just had a little laugh in my head thinking, like, oh, it's like updating your phone, (laughs) right? Like I'm on system 1979, and maybe it's time to update to 2018. Great. Yes, we have to. We have to constantly update our operating system. Yeah, and then loss can sometimes use up a lot of our. To go with the same analogy, it can use up a lot of our memory, and it can use up a lot of our available space, and so it can be harder to do that update. Right. Yeah. The trauma-based therapists are thinking in uh, the trauma literature is that it uh, drains our resources. So in order to say stay safe or to uh, compensate in some ways. All of our resources are being used to do that, right? So we're running our batteries down. Yeah, which leaves us not a lot left over for creativity <clears throat> and engagement. and Exactly. It seems like the changes <clears throat> and the way that the therapeutic world is adapting is moving in the direction of what we've been hearing from people in grief for so long. Exactly. Like, this is something that I'm carrying with me, and I'm noticing there's ways that I... I have a suspicion that possibly it's continuing to affect me in these ways that I would maybe like to change, but I don't want to have to divorce myself from this relationship I had with this person that I cared so much about. You're right. The therapy world, uh, I think, since I've entered it now over 30 years to where it's emerging today with our understanding of what's happening in the brain, is actually becoming more compassionate and less judgmental. Mm. Even our language and our theories from defense and resistance to adaptation is a much more compassionate language than we've had in the past. Absolutely. Much more user-friendly. Yeah, and user-friendly too, right. (laughs) So with your unique perspective of having been a volunteer here in our peer support groups and with your decades of experience in the therapy context, I'm curious, what did you notice that felt the same or different in interacting with people in grief? So I'm, I'm going to talk about the hardest part for me first, okay? So then, and that's that's the difference. And I was working with young children, but the hardest thing for me, coming in as a therapist to be a support person, was not to ask another question, right? It was like to be quiet, mm. or to witness, or to how to language. If I said, to and to not offer a lot of, uh, oh, that's really good kind of stuff, right? The evaluation. It's, yeah, evaluation. It's, uh, you know, it's not, it was just to say, that's big. And I think it took me maybe uh, three months, at least, to not do that. I mean, I would find myself doing it, right? Yeah. And so that was the hardest part. Uh, the, uh, the most fulfilling part, obviously, was sitting in the room with the children and listening to them talk about who they lost, and how they each articulated their story. It was so powerful in their language of listening to how they talked about loss, what they said. And so, and to just be there in a group with them, with other children, but with other adults. And nobody said anything like, oh, that's too bad, or that's hard, or... I'm sorry for your loss. Sorry, for, nobody said any of that. And just how the children could be okay with that. So the, the, the fulfilling part was hearing the children talk about their loss. Uh, the hard part 
was uh, not to use evaluative kind of statements or ask a question right away, right? Mm -hmm. And pursue. And as a therapist, you're almost trained to pursue information. And here was just sort of hearing the information. So that was a big shift. That yeah. was a shift. Yeah, and me. there I mean there's ways that we work around asking questions or eliciting more information, but it sounds like the the goal maybe is different and how we might go about asking that kinds of question. And I think it's a, that's a segue, I think, into the difference between support groups and uh, sort of process-oriented or change-oriented groups, is that in support groups, the goal is not to change the person. The goal is to, to be supportive of how they talk about what they're talking about. I think the other thing that support groups offer, though, and I think it was it is part of your adult program is when you're sitting with other peers, they have resources that you not, they may not have thought about. And that richness of resources that other people have as they've uh, sort of traveled life in this way is a very rich thing that support groups offer. So it's really not changing. It's sort of letting the person settle in to where they're at. So... I think that's one of the major differences in uh, the, between a support group and a change change oriented change oriented one. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of people who come to our groups will say that the experience changed them, mm-hmm. changed how they saw grief, changed how they experienced their loss. But it tends to be—I don't want to say secondary because that makes it seem less important—but it it was an effect of being in community and being in connection. Well, there's, uh, and you've probably read uh, some of Francis Weller's work on uh, grief and loss. And, uh, but he basically says is that one of the things that we've lost uh, as a society is to grieve as a community. So when I think of the Dougie Center and I think of my, what I observed when I was volunteering here, there's something about these children coming together and grieving together as a community of children that they experience these losses. And I think that's what the Dougie Center offers. It's really a community, and we can grieve together as a community, and you don't have to do it in isolation. It's a really powerful thing, I think, that, uh, that and I think support groups offer that. They offer a community. And I appreciate, too, the parameters that we create so that the community is coming together with some guidelines about how we talk and don't talk with one another, which I think when you go out into the world and you talk with your friends and your family, you're trying to reach out for those connections to not grieve in isolation, but oftentimes the conversation doesn't land very well. And so when they come to our groups and we have our guidelines of don't give advice unless you've been asked for advice, don't offer solutions or evaluations, don't try to fix anyone's grief or take away their pain, people seem to just like, like it doesn't make the grief any easier, but it makes being able to talk about it slightly less irritating. Right. Well, I think the way I I appreciate, uh, you know, what you just said about the guidelines that you have here. I think if you don't have those guidelines, I think when people talk about their grief, they can experience shame that they haven't gone this far yet, that they are still talking about it this way. And I think that's part of the, sometimes the dilemma of therapy is that people have been in therapy for their grief, and therapists can inadvertently ask a question in a way that shames the person because they're still grieving the way they're grieving. They haven't done this, right? And I think your guidelines really um, sort of mitigate the possibility of shame 
which is really powerful. Which we're hoping for. Yes, I'm sure it sneaks through occasionally, but we try really hard <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> to no, avoid that. No, I mean, I, and that's why they're important. Do you have a sense, Matt, of what questions would somebody ask themselves when they're trying to decide, mm-hmm. do I go to therapy, do I go to a process group, do I go to a support group, do I do all three? Um, that's, a great, that's a great question. I don't have a, a clear answer for that, but what I would say is, to, uh, from my experience, is that the first step should be to sort of consider a support group. Just because it's, in many ways, uh, the first step is to just be with people, to reduce your isolation, and to be with people who are experiencing what you're experiencing. And then if you begin to feel stuck or it becomes in a way that... that uh, over time, where you, it, it hinders the way you can function in life, to be there for your children or to go to school, or then I think therapy should be considered. But I, I think the first step is to reduce the isolation, find a support group, see what you experience and what you think, see what it's like to be with people who are talking about this in a way that you understand or the way that you talk about it. And see if you get some benefit from it. See if it feels right to you. If it doesn't feel right, if you're a person who is maybe more private or has a different way of thinking about this, then I think you can seeking out therapy uh, is the way. So, uh, and I'm always fascinated how sometimes it seems synergistic, where someone will be in group. They'll hear a story from someone that sparks something for them. Like, oh, I forgot that that was part of my grief with my mom. I forgot how hard and painful it was to have people show up at the memorial service and say things about my mom like they didn't know her. Right. Like, that was that was true for me, too. Like, I see that happen a lot. Right. And then they take that information. They go to their therapist. Right. They talk about it. They put it in the context of their larger life and how that has pl- continues to play out in that frustration with other people. Then they bring that back to the group. This is what I, you know, discovered in my therapy session. And then someone else in the group goes, me, too. Right? So this... There's a and, connection between yeah. the two. Right. I have found that I will, if I'm working with someone and they seem isolated in their own experience, they can't talk to family, they can't talk to their partner, they are having a difficult time with their friends still wanting to listen to them, I often refer people to a support group in order to reduce their isolation right away. I think it's the isolation in our own experience that can create us problems in a way where it keeps things stuck in us in some ways, right? So you want to reduce the isolation, which sometimes is really difficult in a Western society like the United States, is that people have this notion that you're just supposed to do it yourself and get over it, right? I mean, there's this sort of myth Don't burden other people. Yeah, don't burden other people, you know? Um, And so people don't think about that first, to go sit with other people. Then think, i got to deal with this myself. And there's something wrong with me if I can't just figure this all out on my own. Right. One of the most magical things I've seen happen in our peer support groups is, say, somebody is working with their therapist and they have a goal. They're working towards a goal. And they come to the support group and they talk about the goal. Mm -hmm. And then when they go into their life, maybe it's to have a hard conversation with their surviving parent. Mm -hmm. And they come back to group and they report, I had all of you with me. Like I could hear your Mm -hmm. voices in my head supporting Mm -hmm. me as I had this hard conversation with my mom. So there's the isolation piece and then also the feeling supported even outside of the group. That's a great example of when 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 both are working in tandem. 
when the support group and, and the person who's providing the therapy and that everything is working. And the learning occurs at multiple levels. I learn from you, you learn from me. Uh, I see my mother differently, let's say. That in an ideal sense, that's that's how you want it to work, <laughs> what you just described. Right, if right. we could just like tune all the dials perfectly, that's right. how that would happen. Right, I have found, uh, you know, just one, one of the piece, in a number of years ago I was diagnosed with cancer, and so I went to a cancer support group as a therapist. I hadn't been to a support group for myself before, and so I went to one, and uh, the thing that I found out for myself was the other thing that happens is that I come in newly diagnosed or somebody has a recent loss, let's say, and there are people who have been there for a couple of years, let's say, and I get to see myself over time. I know I'm not going to be maybe in this space, in this way forever. That there's hope for that there's to hope be for different. Me. Yeah, I come in with a lot of anxiety, but I realize this can be worked with over time. Right, type of thing. So it's like the learning from others, getting a perspective, seeing it over time is just really helpful. One thing I've heard people say that was interesting, a little bit of a surprise to me, is for some people they come in and they're like, oh, you know, Mm -hmm. in four years I'm going to be able to tell this story in a way that feels more comprehensive. Mm -hmm. Some people come in and think, oh my gosh, I'm still going to be here four years later. So just a note to all of you out there, if you're new to your grief and you go into your support group and you freak out because people have been there for four or five years, just know that grief changes over time. Right, yeah. You're going to do it your way, and the group will be there to support you. In whatever way that in whatever, in whatever way that is, that's the power of a support group. You know, in our last couple of minutes, Matt, yeah. I have a random question yeah. for you. Might be a little bit of a tangent. Yeah. But this is something that I've been thinking about for years. And with your knowledge of family systems mm. and working with the whole family, mm-hmm. often people will say the person who died was the sun in the solar system of our family. And now that that person has died, all the planets are like bouncing around and they're out of their orbit. Do you have a, a sense of what, what is happening there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think systemically, if you look at it systemically, what, if, if there's a change in the system, everything has to realign, right? So there's, a, there's a process of transition or realignment that occurs. I think that happens with families, too, and you see that all the time. I mean, in, in fact, when my mother died, who... Uh, so for my siblings and for myself, my, my parents, they kept the family. Uh, we all had a place to go. There was somebody we all talked to. If I wanted to find out about my sister, I would call my mother, right, and say, well, what's my sister doing? Well, when my mother passed away a couple of years ago, there was a loss. There was a realignment. I couldn't call my mother to find out about my sister. So if I wanted to find out about my sister, I had to call my sister, right? So there are these balls that go up in the air when a person who is seen as the middle, the center, the person who who holds a lot, when they're no longer with us uh, in families, families have to realign. The important thing for the person is to decide how you want to keep family. I mean, you have to... You have to almost make a decision to keep family because you could lose even more. You could lose family in a different way by not realigning. So if I didn't call my sister, for example, I wouldn't uh, stay connected to her because I can't depend on my mother to keep me connected to my sister, 
Right. Yeah, it's almost like you have to make a new friend with <laughs> yes, your sister, you which say, is awkward. Right, well, you have to say family's still important to me, even though my mother's not here. Family's really important to me, so now it's up to me to define it. Right. right? And which, it's going to be different. And can be so unsettling and unmooring, if, particularly in a situation where you're a child and a parent dies, and now you are moving into this role of having to be more active and more directive in creating that family, if that wasn't your experience before. Exactly. If you depended on somebody else to do it, like what you described, as a person being the center of the solar system in some way, and now all of a sudden they're gone, what happens to the solar system? People have to decide they still want the solar system. Yeah, see how much sun they have inside of them. Ah, That's good. That's good. I like that. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us and being part of our conversation today. Oh, it's nice to be here. Thank you. It's great to see you. And uh, it's so nice to see how this work has touched you and and how committed you are to this and having known you a long time ago. It's so been it's a really, really nice long time. It's a long journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we still, I mean, we still look pretty good, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> we didn't age much. <laughs> well, thanks, everyone out there, for listening today. This is our first official episode with our new name of Grief Out Loud. So welcome to that. And if you want to find any of our past episodes, this is episode number 70. You can find us in iTunes in Stitcher, on our website, D-O-U-G-Y dot or any other podcast platform you might use. If you wouldn't mind giving us a rating or review while you're in there, that would be great. Helps other people find our podcast. And if you have an idea for a topic or something you'd like to hear us talk about, send us an email, help at Dougie.org, and we'll do our best to create an episode for you. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Music for this episode was written and performed by Layla Chieko and Dr. Turtle.